Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking rest? It is enough, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, by your Spirit, make our feet not to stumble, our sword never rest, and our shield never rust. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Maybe you came here today expecting a sermon of rebuttal against the wickedness of our culture. We do preach sermons like that when the text takes us there. Or maybe you came here today expecting a sermon of deep and peculiar theological insight. We do preach sermons like that when the text takes us there. But today the text takes us to the basics of the Christian life. And if you don't have down the basics of the Christian life, then you're not ready to take on the wickedness of culture, and you're not ready for deep and peculiar theological insight. Within Christianity, the sinners and the Savior are part of the same story, part of the same garden. Jesus' three times of prayer are met with three periods of sleep by Jesus' three closest disciples, one of whom denies Jesus three times. Yet, the Savior prays for the strength to go and die in the place of His Him. But Jesus is not just praying for the strength to endure the suffering. He is wrestling with the Heavenly Father about the savage fate that awaits Him. Christ prays in the Garden of Gethsemane and feels anguish because he knows that the crucifixion will cut him off from the realm of his heavenly Father, and he wants to be spared from this pain. Gethsemane is the Mount of Olives, specifically an olive orchard on the Mount of Olives. Jesus' presence in the Garden of Gethsemane is no accident. Adam's fall occurred in the Garden of Eden. Satan overcame him there. Adam was led away from the garden in captivity and under the sentence of death. Now here in Mark chapter 14, Jesus, like Adam, is taken away from the garden as a captive headed for death. Here, Jesus, the great olive, will be squeezed so that the oil of the Spirit might flow from him to all men. After Adam sinned in the garden, he hid from God. Now, Jesus, on a mission to reverse Adam's sin, seeks out the Heavenly Father in prayer. So Adam runs from God, 
Jesus seeks out the Father. And how does Jesus seek out the Father? In prayer. And Jesus' prayer is very simple. He does not want to face the cross. But if it's God's will, He volunteers to face it. And in this way, He will conquer the enemy, which is sin, death, and the devil. This episode in Gethsemane reminds us that Calvary was not easy for Jesus. And these verses show how hard it was. Jesus seeks the comfort of his three dearest disciples. Yet they sleep while Jesus prepares to face the wrath of God alone. Then the enemies come to arrest Jesus. And notice, when his enemies come to arrest him, Jesus is praying. So Jesus, who earlier in his ministry said, pray for your enemies, now as his enemies come to arrest him, he is praying. This reminds us, those who have long enemy lists have a bigger obligation to pray. The more enemies you collect, the more prayer you are obligated to. You're not just to pray for your enemies, but you are to pray for the enemies when they come to arrest you. This passage shows us at least two things. It shows us first how the disciples relate to Jesus in a pattern of disobedience. And second, it shows us how Jesus relates to the Heavenly Father in a pattern of obedience. So first, let's consider how the disciples relate to Jesus in a pattern of disobedience. We see this in two ways. First, they were told to watch. Verse 34, he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. We also see this command in verses 37 and 38. What does it mean to watch? Well, they need to be spiritually alert. They need to be alert against sleep, both physically and spiritually in this case. They need to be alert against weakness, both physically and spiritually in this case. They need to be alert against indifference, alert against the temptation to deny Jesus. Back in Mark chapter 13, verse 36, Jesus warned them that if they don't stay awake, then the sun will return and find them asleep. Jesus is vexed when he finds them sleeping because of the dangers to which they are exposing themselves. Jesus warns them not to sleep for their own safety, for their own good, and yet they sleep. But it's not just Jesus commanding the disciples to watch. This command is given to the church eight times throughout the New Testament. So it's not just that the disciples need to watch, it's that you need to watch. Watch for what? Well, Romans 16, 7, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Galatians 5, 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And earlier in the verse, it's telling them to love. So the opposite of being consumed by one another is to love one another. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. 
Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. 2 John, verse 8, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. It's not just the disciples who are commanded to watch. You are commanded to watch too. Just as in the Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan depicts hopeful telling Christian that he's so drowsy he can't hold open his eyes, so too Christians of all ages drowse. And in particular, Christians today are drowsing. They are snoozing on the issue of temptation to sin. Christians today just willfully open themselves up to all manner of temptation to sin with very little wisdom, very little accountability, and very little guardrails. Christians today are falling asleep on the top of a mast in the midst of a sea while the soul is in grave danger of enchantment with sin. And so the disciples were told to watch. And you also are told to watch. And that leads to the second way that the disciples relate to Jesus through disobedience. And that is they were told not to enter into temptation. We see this in verse 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So you need to understand what happens when you're tempted to sin. You see how temptation works earlier in Jesus' ministry when Christ faces the devil's temptations in the wilderness. In the wilderness, you'll remember, Satan wanted Christ to abandon trust in the Heavenly Father. And that's what happens when you're tempted to sin. Temptation brings you to the place where you depend on the flesh rather than the Spirit. And that's what verse 38 is getting at when it says, this is a commonly quoted verse that we quote to each other a lot, when it says, the Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So you want to supply your own needs rather than trust the promises of God to provide what is best for you. So when you're tempted to sin, here's this temptation right in front of you. And you trust the weakness of your flesh and you say, ah, this will satisfy my desire. This will satisfy my appetite. And so you abandon trust in the Lord and you trust your flesh. You trust the weakness of your flesh and you indulge in the sin. And when you succumb to temptation to sin, you depart from the life of faith and you put God to the test. But what happens today, especially for Christians today, is Christians today are so presumptuous about grace is that they still expect God to protect them while they willfully commit sin. They say, ah, it's fine. It's fine. God's got a lot of grace. So it's okay if in this temptation I satisfy all of my appetites in the weakness of flesh. It's fine. God will forgive me. But this is a dangerous game. Nowhere in Scripture are you taught to presume upon the grace of God. God never promises refuge 
in the moment of your rebellion. God never promises refuge in the context and in the activity of your rebellion. So what should you do when tempted? Well, back to the moment when Satan tempted Jesus earlier in Jesus' ministry. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, he resists with the Word of God. And now here in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is struggling in Gethsemane, he resists the temptation by praying. So what should you do when you're tempted? Again, this is the basics of the Christian life. When you are tempted by sin, you must first trust the promises of God found in the Bible, and second, you must express your faith in God through prayer. Cry out to Him. Cry out to God. Ask Him for help. Send your spirit. Help me, Lord. I know the power of the gospel is real. I know it lives in me. Help me, Lord. Jesus tells Peter in verse 38, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And so, when you're tempted to sin, you must pray. And by praying, what are you doing? You're not just reciting words. By praying, you are casting yourself entirely upon God and the truth of His promises, the blessings He has for you, the promises He's made for you through Christ and given to you by the Spirit are greater than whatever this temptation to sin is before you that you want to satisfy your appetites with. And so you pray and you cast yourself entirely upon God, entirely upon His power and His promises, rather than taking Satan's bait in trying to supply your own needs as pronounced by the weakness of your flesh. That is how the willing spirit overcomes the weak flesh. In Jesus' statement here, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak, it comes from Psalm 51 verse 12 where David says, uphold me with a willing spirit. And so that should be our prayer. When we're tempted to sin and we think that we can satisfy our weak flesh with this sin, we go to the Lord and we say, and we say Father, uphold me with a willing spirit. That should be our prayer. And so what we're seeing in this passage is that the disciples relate to Jesus in a pattern of disobedience in two ways. But second, we see that Jesus relates to the Heavenly Father in a pattern of obedience. And this in two ways. First, notice Jesus prays. Now throughout Mark's Gospel, Mark records Jesus at prayer in Mark chapter 1 verse 35, Mark chapter 6 verse 46, and then here in Mark chapter 14. Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane provides insight into the mysterious relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Here, in the garden, there is a blending of the will of the Father in heaven and the will of the Son on earth. In the garden, for a moment, their two wills pull in different directions. Now, has this ever happened to you? Have you ever been in a situation where your will was pulling in a different direction from the clear, manifest will of God the Father? Well, that's what's happening here. For a moment, the Son's will is pulling in a different direction from the will of God the Father. Not my will, but yours be done. That represents two wills. But in the process of persistent prayer, notice 
the two wills are brought together because of the son's willing submission to the father's purpose. Not what I will, but what you will. It's verse 36. And so, do you want your will to be the same as the Father's will? In those moments when your will is pulling in one direction and the Father's will is pulling in a different direction, do you want your will to be the same as the Father's will? And I'm not talking about that idea of manipulating God so that His will all of a sudden becomes what you wanted all along. No, that's not what's going on here. Jesus' will pulls in one direction. The Father's will pulls in another direction. But through prayer, the Son's will conforms to the Father's will. Do you want that in your life? Do you want your will to be the same as the Father's will? Of course, every Christian will answer yes to that question. Well, if you want your will to match the Father's will, then follow the pattern of Jesus. Pray, 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 and then pray. Fully submit yourself to the will of God. Now, Jesus' prayer here in Gethsemane is the scene that lies behind that vivid account in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. I want you to listen to this. It's Hebrews 5, 7 through 9. This is describing the Gethsemane scene. In the days of the flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This is describing Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, in the garden, prays three times. And it says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, that God the Father hears His prayers because of His reverence, not because of His casualness. That's the new virtue of evangelicalism, I know. But the Father doesn't hear your prayers because of your casualness. No, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 says that the Father hears the prayers of the Son because of His reverence. Jesus prays in reverence, not casualness. And understand, this is talking about the disposition of your heart. And so, Jesus prays, prays, prays in reverence, and then Jesus' will conforms to the will of God the Father. That's what it says in Hebrews 5.8. It says, Jesus learned obedience. So, He prays, prays, prays in reverence, and then the Son learns obedience. That is, His will conforms to the will of God the Father. He doesn't learn obedience as in he moves from disobedience to obedience. No, it's talking about how he's submitting himself to the will of God. And Jesus goes to the cross and endures suffering to become the source of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. That's what it says in Hebrews 5, 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So the question is, do you want to learn obedience in the way that the Son, in Hebrews 5.8, as it says, learned obedience? When your will pulls in one direction and the Father's pulls in another, what should you do? Well, this is what you should do. You should pray, pray, pray in reverence. And in that prayer, your will can be changed and it can be conformed to match the Father's will. And notice the disciples failed to pray. They were asleep. They failed to pray. They claimed they were willing to share Jesus' sufferings. 
yet they fail to live up to their words. Why? Because they don't pray. They sleep. And so the first way Jesus relates to the Father in a pattern of obedience is Jesus prays. And the second way is that Jesus submits. This is what we see back to verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. You see there, Jesus asked, this cup be removed from me. Jesus does not sin by asking that the cup is removed. Why does Jesus ask that the cup be removed? Well, understand what the cup represents. Jesus is about to drink the cup of God's wrath. And Jesus knows that the words of Psalm 11.6 will find fulfillment in His suffering. Psalm 11.6, Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Jesus knows those words, and He knows that those words are intended for Him. Jesus knows all the words of all the imprecatory psalms. The imprecatory psalms are those dozen or so psalms in the Old Testament which call down cursings upon the enemies of God. You know, and Christians today like to talk about imprecatory psalms, and we usually stroke our chin when we say, should we be praying the imprecatory psalms? Maybe we should pray them on Hamas on Sunday. And, and that's a fine discussion, and I do like chin stroking, so keep that up. But understand that if there is application for imprecatory psalms in our moment in history, it is very limited. And understand that the primary purpose of the imprecatory psalms is in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why they're there. The imprecatory psalms, all of the cursings and all of the wrath that you find in those psalms find their fulfillment in the suffering of Jesus Christ. And Jesus knows this. That's why he's praying that the cup be removed. He's preparing to hang on the tree as a curse for us. He's preparing to drink the blistering cup of fury. The agony of Jesus' prayers here are beyond our ability to understand. We cannot and do not know how Jesus felt. He sweated drops of blood, Luke twenty-two forty-two tells us. We can't understand the intensity of this experience. Thomas Brooks the Puritan said that the garden was watered with tears of blood. Jesus is preparing to die a death he didn't earn. He's preparing to suffer all of the cursings of all of the wicked that he doesn't deserve. And this, by the way, is how he becomes the servant of all. Maybe you remember Mark chapter 10, verse 45. It's the theme verse for all of Mark's gospel when Jesus says, I came not to be served. Excuse me, I came not to... Uh, oh, somebody help me here. I came not to, uh, <laughs> I came not to uh, <clears throat> uh, be a servant. I'm sorry, I came not to be served, but to be a servant of all. Just forget the last 20 seconds. I came not to be... <laughs> Uh, serve, but to become a servant of all. And this finds its fulfillment in the cross of Christ when he is suffering for his people. That's how he is servant of all, by receiving all of the imprecatory psalms in his person on the cross. And so when Jesus prays in Gethsemane, the Father sends an angel 
Now, this is not found in Mark's account of the Garden of Gethsemane scene, but it is found in Luke 22, verse 43. Jesus prays, and the Father sends an angel. And maybe for you, that means prayer time is over. We go to the Lord, we say, Lord, help me. And then the Lord sends an angel. And you're, Thank you, Lord, you send an angel. Prayer time's over, but not for Jesus. Angels don't come to end Jesus' prayer. They come to strengthen Jesus for even more prayer. Do you think prayer is important? Prayer is the weapon of our warfare. At least it's one of them when you read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 20. Do you want to be a warrior for Christ? Then you need to pray. These are the weapons of our warfare. And in my experience, the greatest warriors in any church are the little old ladies who pray. They are greater warriors for Christ than the young men who pound their chest for Jesus. Because you know what? Young men don't usually pray as much as they should. The warriors for Christ in most churches are the old women who pray. And that's what's happening here. Jesus sends, or the Father sends an angel to Jesus so he can keep praying. Why? Because that's the warfare, to resist the temptation to sin. And because of Jesus' prayer, he does avoid temptation. What was his temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, the temptation is to not go to the cross. But the entire ministry of Jesus is bringing him to the point of overcoming the fear of suffering on the cross. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he sets his journey in the direction of Jerusalem. Why? Because that's the place of his passion. And so he's set in the direction of Jerusalem. Jesus knows what the scriptures prophesied. He knows the Father's will, and he sets his face to do that will, and he is willing to go and suffer and die. And so we see how Jesus relates to the Father in a pattern of obedience in two ways. So in conclusion, Jesus brings about the salvation of his disciples while they sleep. And Jesus brings about our salvation while we sleep. We sleep in nothingness before our birth, and we sleep in sinfulness after our birth. And yet Jesus endures the curse for all those who would believe in him. He prays only once that the cup might pass from him. And then he submits to the Father's will. We see in the garden why Jesus is weary at heart. His friends sleep while his enemies watch. Yet Jesus submits himself completely to his Father's will. These are the basics of the Christian life. Our prayer and our submission to the Father is built on Jesus' prayer and Jesus' submission to the Father. All of your prayer, all of your obedience is built on the foundation of Jesus' prayer and Jesus' obedience that we see here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in Jesus' submission, what did he do? He accomplished salvation for his people so that through faith in him, they are forgiven of their sin. The guilt of the punishment of their sin is done away. They are declared right with God and they are made new to walk in the newness of of life. These are the basics of the Christian life, living in the power of the gospel with your own prayer and your own life of submission to the will of God. And if you don't have down the basics of the Christian life, then you aren't ready to take on the wickedness of culture. 
and you aren't ready for deep and peculiar theological insights. The basics of the Christian life start with the word, with prayer, with learning, obedience, when no one is watching, and submitting your imperfect will to God's will. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, if our faith has suffered damage, if our hope is less than bright, if our love is not fervent, if creature comforts occupy our hearts, refresh us to rise again and walk in faith. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.